Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. For the time remaining from now until 1045, we're going to have our brother Ken Hardesty come up. Brother Ken, please. Well, good morning. It's always uh, fun to come and remember the Lord, isn't it? It's always a joy to just sit and remember Him and hear the brothers and... Uh, getting up and sharing and having songs that lift up praise to his name because he's the, our whole reason for life now, isn't he? He's the whole reason why we get up in the morning. <laughs> he's our life and he's our purpose and we're so very thankful for him and for what he has done. We are going back to the book of Lamentations this morning. So if you haven't yet turned there, turn to Lamentations chapter 1. And we're going to read the first nine into ten verses, which is, which is dealing with the, the first um, narrator, if you will. There, as we're going to see as we go along, there are several characters that will show up in the book of Lamentations. And one of those characters we will call the narrator. And that is likely Jeremiah, who is narrating now. He will take a, a big portion when it comes into into chapter 2 and beyond, we will see him again. But the first nine verses are the narrator, is the narrator looking over uh, the scene that he sees. It begins like this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princes among the provinces have become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity. Under affliction and hard servitude, she dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn, because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hands of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore, she has become vile. All who honor her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. 
Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of this portion of his word. Father, give guidance, we pray, to our thinking this morning, so that your Son may be glorified and honored, and that your name may be upheld. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Last week when we began, we began thinking about not only the suffering of Jerusalem, which we know to be the center of these laments, but we also recognize that laments in and of themselves are good and profitable things. Even in the world in which we live, we also lament. And we also lift up our laments unto the Lord. I was reading in uh, Christianity Today. Some of you may read that. Some of you may not. Some of you may like that publication. Some of you may not. I like to read it simply because I like to see what's going on in people's minds and in their thinking other than what sometimes I would agree with. But in November's issue of Christianity Today... It was speaking of how the world of Christendom is suffering today. And that was like one of their main articles. And these are some of the things that are in there. They suffer day in and day out. They suffer rejection. They're suffering torture. They're suffering banishment. We sit, as it were, aloof. We sit, as it were, above the fray. And we can look down and hear of their affliction, but sometimes it just becomes words. It just becomes statistics. And we forget that these are real people. Your brothers and sisters who are suffering. Great deal of suffering from which we, until this point in our country, have been spared. The struggle. According to Christianity Today, every day 13 Christians are killed because of their faith alone. Every day, 13 of our brothers and sisters give their life because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned and another five are abducted. Every day. This is happening in the world that is around us. The listed nations contain 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution. That's up from 260 million the year before. It is increasing in its intensity around the world. Hatred. Last year, 45 nations scored high enough to register as very high persecution levels. This year, the top 10 persecutors are relatively unchanged. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Major countries of persecution around the world. And Nigeria entered in to the top 10 for the first time for its violence against Christians. And we just re- we were speaking even last week. Someone was mentioning the 
or no, I guess it was a Thursday afternoon at the devotional we were at Park of the Palms, that uh, those hundreds, I think it was 200 or so um, Christians in Nigeria were taken captive just, in a, just last week or the week before last. And you know they've been taken captive by very hostile men and women. And their life lays in the balance. Lament is rising all over the world. A crying out to God by these men and women who are facing deep and severe persecution. Do our hearts lament with them? Do our hearts ache with them? In the autonomous regions of the Philippines, now in Mindanao, I, I've told you this before, down in Mindanao, they have carved out an autonomous Muslim region now where they can exercise Sharia law and have their own laws underneath the auspices of the Philippine government, but yet they are told you cannot persecute any Christians in the area. You know how well that works. It does not work. And pastors of churches are being dragged into the street and shot and killed. Congregations being scattered. Persecution. And voices raising up to God. Crying out to God. And we are aware of these things in one measure or another. The news will rarely, rarely, if ever, mention this persecution. It doesn't fit their narrative. But the persecution of your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, is going on day in and day out. Are we not called to weep with those who weep? Are we not called to weep with those who weep? And when our brothers and sisters are weeping, they're lifting up their voices to the Lord in lament for the suffering endured by so many. Will we not join them? In lament, will we not join them in calling out to God? We know God is sovereign. We know His purposes. We, we know that His purpose is set and firm. But will our hearts not cry out to Him for those that we know in our day and age that are suffering? Lamentations in scriptures, whether they be psalms, or whether they be in Job, whether you find them in the prophets, which we do oftentimes, they call our hearts, as we mentioned last week, and we'll reiterate over and over, they call on our hearts to remember, remember the suffering. Remember the pain. They should stir our hearts with continued emotion as we read them. We ended last week. I believe we ended last week by saying these five songs of lament cause us to remember. Do not forget what we have endured, lest you also face the same in your life and in your country. Because God is God. And what He says He will do, guess what? He'll do. And so it calls us to remember, to remember. And it's repeated over and over again, lest we repeat what they've gone through. 
It's a severe warning that goes out. And Lamentations gives us that memorial and gives us that warning. The principle as to why they suffered has not changed. The principle as to why they suffered has not changed. They turned their back on the living God. And even though the prophets, and you can read through Jeremiah as I was doing again this morning, just to refresh my mind of those things. Through Jeremiah, the prophets, the Lord was pleading with his people to repent. Lest the judgment fall on you. Because surely it will if you do not repent. And they would respond, we are not interested in repentance. We're interested in the life that we have, and the Lord will surely protect us anyway. And they neglected to turn their hearts back toward the Lord in repentance. But these were real people. These are real people with real pain and suffering. How many of you enjoy reading history? I enjoy history. And I can read a lot of history. And I can see a lot of suffering that happened in this world over the, over the millennium. A lot of suffering that happened over all those years. And you can understand that these were real people with real emotional, physical suffering that they were enduring. We can't forget that. It's just not ink on a page that we just casually read through. These were people who suffered through horrendous times. Horrendous times. They were people just like you and just like me. And we also know, because we know the Scriptures, that there is a time coming in which this kind of suffering will once again come upon the whole earth. We know that there is a time of tribulation coming, a time of great tribulation that will try men. We realize that those who come to know Christ, even during that tribulation period of time, they will suffer greatly because they name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Jeremiah, in Job, and in David, and in the Psalms, and others, of their personal struggles with the Lord, and their struggles as a community before Him, and their struggles of aloneness. Is there anything worse than aloneness? You know, there used to be a song years ago, and I'm dating myself now, one is the loneliest number that I've ever known. Two can be as bad as one, but one is the worst. It's the loneliness. One. Their loneliness, their hardship, their feelings of abandonment, their desire to grasp onto God in their struggles with man. We find them crying out in lament. We find that same cry. It's time. I just looked up and I said, uh-oh. We see that same cry on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 22, don't we? A psalm of lament. We mentioned this last week where he looked up to the Father. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me 
a cry of lament from the lips of the Savior. So when you cry out and lament, you're in good company. You're in good company. You're in the company of David. You're in the company of Job. You're in the company of the, of the writers of the Psalms with the sons of Korah and with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The one who knew all things and yet cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? We're still on our introduction. We'll have to continue after, after the break. Okay, let's go back to Lamentations, please. And, I, and as I look out here, I think everyone was here earlier, right? All of you were here. No one new has come in just for the instruction time. So that's good. So I will briefly just read a couple of these verses. Since we've already read the, the context of these earlier, would you read a couple of verses and then we'll... And then we'll go on from there. That was, that was interesting music going on. <laughs> okay, lamentations, please. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she is, who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, again, we seek the guidance of thy spirit. If we are to learn or gain anything that is of eternal value, it must come from the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives. So we commit ourselves to thee. We ask for your guidance and strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Lamentations also presents to us some challenging theological issues. And they're those age-old theological issues that men have struggled with down through the ages. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do God's people suffer? Now we recognize here the reasons. We have been told the reasons. We understand the reasons. But to separate God's judgments from His sovereignty and His sovereign acts on behalf of men and women, the judgment that falls on little children from the hand of the Lord, that we know Scripture teaches us that He is a good God. And so you have these issues that come up in these lamentations, especially in these five psalms that we find here, that challenge those very issues. The all-loving God, <coughs> no COVID, the all-loving God is pouring out wrath, and that wrath is falling on all of them. Among all of them, there were some who were a remnant that still believed. But the wrath poured out on all of them. The people of Judah, living within the walls of Jerusalem, because they believed this is the place where God has placed His name. This is where the temple resides. God will never allow His temple to be taken 
And so they rested in false security inside the walls. And then when the walls looked like they were going to be coming down, they rested in the temple itself. Fled to the temple. God will spare us as long as we are in the temple. But we know it didn't happen. We know that the armies of Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed not only the walls and not only the temple, but leveled and raised the city in the anger at this third rebellion that came up against his rule. Now, I will sip this, but it'll be the last time I pick it up in all likelihood. I will, sometimes I'll hold them and I'll walk around with them, but then I don't take another sip of them. So he's, he's dealing with this, dealing with this theological, grappling with this theological issue as he's working through it. We, we saw it happen again. We didn't see it. Our fathers, perhaps, and our grandparents saw the devastation that came in World War II when six million Jews were slaughtered at the hands of the Nazis. Do you think they cried out to God for deliverance? Do you think deliverance came? Not in that immediate situation, it did not. And there was silence from heaven. As we said before, here in Lamentations, there is silence from heaven. Never once does God speak through the Lamentations. Never once does Jeremiah or the Lady Zion or the strong man that we find in chapter 3, never once do we find God interacting and, and speaking through these psalms. They have been abandoned. Did God not see them? Certainly He saw them. Certainly He saw them. When they cried out to Him to look at me, did God not see? But to them, in their situations, it was as if heaven was brass, as I shared that story with you last week. Now, you'll find in the book of Lamentations this fact that this event was taking place. It's probably the event that took place at 587 B.C. when the armies came down and devastated and destroyed that city. It was the time of the warning of the prophets coming to fruition. They had warned. They had failed to listen. They had failed to believe that God would ever, ever do such things to His covenant people. And even though it was very part of His promise to them in the curses that we saw last week, Babylon became, as it were, the hammer in the hand of God to execute His judgment on the people. And you can read those stories back in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. Now many of the commentators, if you'll read through the commentators, many of them will call this the funeral of a city. They'll entitle it, and you might miss that if you don't read the titles, but the title is a funeral of a city. And so it is. The city has been destroyed. It's men killed. It's women young and old ravished. Infants killed Wombs ripped open, starvation, thirst, no hope. Mothers boiling their own children and eating them. It's horrendous. It's awful. Absolutely awful to read through the things that happen. Jerusalem, the once proud city, is no more. 
The joy of the whole world, the whole earth, is no more. It's been level. And the book of this poetry comes out of that great pain, that great agony of heart and soul. They speak these words. And oftentimes that's the case. You know, we, we talked about uh, a little bit about Western poetry that is a little bit different. Maybe we didn't talk about it here, but we're not going to do it because we'll run out of time. But Western poetry also oftentimes come out of great pain. you remember these lines, won't you? We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt the dawn, saw sunlight glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Moving. I mean, even as I read it, I get chills, you know, because you, you recognize the agony and pain that wrote those words. That wrote those words. Jeremiah himself, when these, when these words are being written, and you'll see it, when Jeremiah himself has hit rock bottom, the weeping prophet has hit rock bottom, and he says, my sorrow is as deep as the sea. My tears flood over and continue to flow. Predicting suffering is one thing. As the prophet, he could predict all the suffering that was coming as the Lord revealed the suffering that was to come upon the people of of Judah and Jerusalem. He predicted everything that would come upon them if they had not repented, did not repent. But predicting is one thing. Experiencing it is something very different, isn't it? Very different. Very different. We can can sympathize with someone who is suffering gravely with terminal cancer. But until you have it yourself, you don't understand the pain that they're enduring the emotional and spiritual pain that they're going through. He was experiencing now the judgments of God. And it moved him deeply because he loved the Lord who was bringing on all of this hardship. It's very much like, and I might have mentioned this last week, forgive me if I do, I I speak in a lot of places and sometimes I say stuff and then I say, did I say it there, did I say it? I should probably listen to myself speak, and then I'd know what I said last week. But it's like the difference between in C.S. Lewis. Did I mention this last week? C.S. Lewis wrote two books about suffering. One was called, um, uh, one was called, oh, that was the second one. The first one was The Problem of Pain. I wrote it down in my notes. The Problem of Pain was the first one. And The Problem of Pain was a very good, and I'm, I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan. I'm, I'm really not. He's, he's too philosophical for me, and I'm too simple. And he, but he, he was talking about the theological ramifications of the problem of pain, like we were talking about earlier, that come up in the book of Lamentations. And he was going through all of those things. Very well written, very good book, very moving book. But then, in a grief observed, in the second book he wrote, he had just lost his wife. And the pain and the suffering of loneliness and the struggles that he himself was now experiencing changed his whole viewpoint. 
And you would hear him crying out in lament to God, Why have you done this? And this was this great theologian who could teach in the problem of pain what pain was and how, how you are to deal with it before a sovereign God. But yet when, he came, when it became his own, it was a different story. And so it is. And so it is. So if you read those books, always read both of them. Read the problem of pain first, and then read the second one. Jeremiah speaks to us quite literally because he's going through and experiencing what the people are experiencing. His words are, are clothed in this poetic form, but they're very clear and they're very focused and he's alive with emotional pain. It's fresh and it's raw, if you'll let it. You know, some, sometimes, and I'm one of the people, one of these people, I am not a poetry person. And I shared this with you last week. I don't like poetry. It, it irritates me because I can never understand what they're saying, you know. There's some deep meaning here, and I read it through, and I say, oh, there's some deep meaning here. I have no clue what it is, but there's got to be some deep meaning here behind all these words. Hebrew poetry, of course, is a little bit different, and it's more, it's clear in its presentation of things. It's quite concrete in, in many ways, although they have very different kinds of parallelisms that they use um, in structuring their thing. But still, reading through sometimes, if you don't take the time to meditate on it, you miss you miss the emotion and the heartache of the writer. You miss the... Now, the form. What form does this take? What form does it take? It is an acrostic. All four of the first of, the first of these laments are acrostic. The last one, the fifth one, is not. But the four are acrostic, and they go from... They go from Aleph all the way through Tau in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. They go from every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 letters. That's why you see 22 standards. 22 stanzas in chapter 1, 22 stanzas in chapter 2, 66 in chapter 3. And you say, well, what happened there? He emphasizes now when he gets to chapter 3, And not only he uses the same Hebrew letters in the same order, there's one place where he reverses the order, which is very interesting, but they're all in the same order, but he repeats the same letter three times. And then he goes on and repeats the next letter three times. So in essence, it's really 22 verses of the same Hebrew letter now expressed to us in our translation as 66. Then you get back to chapter 4, and it goes back to 22 But there, they begin to shorten. They begin to become uh, two-line phrases. And then when you get to chapter 5, it is one line after one line after one line. It's as if coming through the pain and suffering of the time, getting to that high point of chapter 3, now they're coming almost like stumbling into into the end of the book as it goes slower. And that's intentional by the writer. It's intentional by him. So these are acrostics. Now, remember, like chapter Psalm 111 and Psalm 119 are also acrostic, and there's others that are like that. But you remember that in Hebrew, it was originally a pictorial language, right? It was, it was really a pictorial language. Now, over the years, the letters have adapted and changed to the current form which you see them. But the original letters were little pictures of things. 
like Aleph would be was a little picture of a of a head and it had this idea of, of the head, the leader, the ruler, the chief. You get bet and it had it was like a house. It was shaped looked like a little house. It's like a little circle and it has a little line in the middle. It has the idea of the tent with the two sides to it. Then you get one that has an open door. Gimel. So you, you work through all of these and you see these little pictures. Now, if you know that and you go through very carefully, and we're getting off our subject now, that's too bad. But we, as you go through them, when you do that in chapter 119 of Psalms and you begin to apply that picture to the stanzas that it represents, it will open up some ideas for you that this is speaking of a chief. This is speaking of a dwelling place. This is speaking that each one is matching the Hebrew letter as it goes along. And that's a good study for you. Does it work here in Lamentations? Well, let's, we'll see as we get there. We will get there. We will get there. But it, it, is, a, it is acrostic in that sense. So now I've already introduced you to the different actors. So let's get into the, into the text for the last 10 minutes that we have here. He begins this text, and this is Aleph, so it's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that first letter of the Hebrew alphabet has this idea of a chief or a leader or the head. And so he says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she is who was great among the nations, the princess of the province, the leader, the head of the provinces is this one. You see how he starts? He starts with this Hebrew word that's been translated variously in different, uh, because it's a very hard word to translate, so I am told. Very hard word to translate. But what it means, that's why some people, maybe in some of your Bibles, it uses the word alas. It has this idea of why, how, How can it possibly be that this is what's happening? So there's a question that is in this word. It has this idea of a question, not simply a statement. It's not how she sits. It's how is it even possible that she can be sitting alone? This is God's city. This is the place where he placed his name. How is it even possible that this has happened? How is it possible? Alas, look, can it be? Can it be? She sits alone. Can it be that she sits by herself? This is daughter Zion. Now we recognize that what happens here is that this is a, you know, when you talk about uh, anthropo, uh, how do you say anthropo, Morphic, anthropomorphic. It is, she is now taking on the characteristics of a real person, although she's actually a literal city. But she takes on the, the aspects and the attributes of a real person, a real woman who is agonizing. And we are to see it that way. We are to see it as this is, although it's a city, this one woman is representation of the entire group of everyone within that city. And this is what they are all going through. It is the city as a whole represented in this one woman. 
So you have human characteristics of a city that is suffering. She says, how are the narrator says as he's looking at the affliction of the city, how lonely sits the city. We talked about loneliness a few moments ago. It is an awful thing to be alone. It is hard to be alone. And when that aloneness goes on for a long, long period of time, it changes people. It changes you. It change, You know, when we suffer, when we suffer, initially it usually affects us. The pain is physical. Okay, so you have some kind of a physical ailment and there's pain involved in it. But eventually, if that pain goes on and on and on, it begins to affect your emotion. And then eventually, it affects your spiritual walk. Because you are made spirit, soul, and body. You're all one thing. It's not like you can separate this one out and say, well, I'm going to be this, not separate it out here. But because you're hurting over here in your body, but it's not going to affect you. That's almost Gnosticism. You're one person made up of spirit, soul, and body. And when one part of it hurts, it affects all of who you are. And here's this woman, picture the city, pictured as a woman, and she is sitting all alone. She is in agony and pain because of what has happened. It's already happened. It's already done. The city is already destroyed. The temple is already destroyed. And here she sits all alone. No one to help her. No one to help her. Ah. She's, he goes on, he says, you know, it was the city that was once full of people. You know, when you read down, you read to uh, in Psalm 42 and the when the sons of Korah there are speaking and they say, you know, they talk about uh, how the deer pants for the water brook. My soul longs after you. And he talks, oh, I used to go with the multitude to the festivals and the feasts of the Lord. Oh, how I used to go. How I long to go with them. Because that was the joy in the heart of the people of Israel to travel down on those feast days up into the city with the throngs of people and they would rejoice and praise God together. And she says, it used to be on those feast days, the the city was full of people rejoicing. Look at it now. Where are all the joyful people coming to praise and worship at the temple. The temple is no more. The temple is no more. She used to be full of people. But now, she is like a widow who no longer has a husband and whose children are gone. And and a widow, of course, in those days, it meant a whole lot more than it does to you and I in, in Western culture. That meant she was deprived of everything. She had nothing. She was cast off. No one would care for her future. She was great among the nations. At one time, under the reign of Solomon, oh, what a glorious place the nation of Israel was. 
the extent of that kingdom, the wisdom and glory of Solomon, how silver was common stuff. Gold was everywhere. People would come into Jerusalem and marvel at the wonder of this great city. It was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces, Israel, I mean, Jerusalem itself, has now become the slave. She has now become the common laborer. The one who was the head has now become the tail. The one who was, was the head, the rulers of the, of the kings of the earth, now sits as a widow. And the people have gone into captivity, gone to be slaves of the people of Babylon. Now, we know the rest of the story, so we can, we can go in our minds, go to where the rest of the story goes. But when you're sitting in an ash heap, you feel pretty hopeless. And so this woman felt, or so this city felt, hopeless, abandoned, abandoned by God. You become, they're forced into labor, forced labor now, instead of the joys of what they once had. She weeps bitterly in the night. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheek. Among all her lovers, she has no one, none to comfort her. Now, that's going to be a common phrase you're going to see over and over in this chapter. Five times it's used. No one to comfort. No one to come to her side. No one to comfort. Isn't it wonderful, my brothers and sisters, that when we go into struggle and hardship and and tears fall from our eyes, that we have a comforter who's always with us. We have one who comes alongside us, our paracletus, who comes alongside us to guide and and comfort. She had no one to comfort her in her sorrow. No one. She was abandoned. Those who she had given so much of herself to over all of the years had abandoned her. And she was, the city was alone. No one to comfort. So remember that phrase as we go through. And it says, now it starts at, where it says, all in the end of verse 2, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. That word all becomes the key word all the way through this chapter. You'll see it over and over again. All have abandoned. All the city. All the priests. All the, all, all, all. It's, it's giving you a sense of the totality and completeness of what she's suffering. It isn't she's suffering a little. She's suffering in every conceivable way. She, this city, is suffering. The people are suffering. In all conceivable ways, she is suffering. She speaks at the end of verse 9, which we didn't read yet. She speaks... And she pleads, oh, Lord, behold my affliction. Look at me. Look at me, Lord. Behold my affliction. Has anyone ever suffered like me? And there is no answer. 
Jude, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations, among the Gentiles. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. All overtake her in dire straits. Where do I want to go with that? You know, I, I, I want to look at the acrostics and bring them in, those words and bring them in, but our, our time is actually tick, ticking away. It's already gone, gone. Lenny just went like this, so that means 5, 10, 15. <laughs> oh, you said it twice. <laughs> Behold my affliction. All her friends have dealt with her treacherously. All her friends. The ones who used to be her friends, they are now their enemies. You have, you have people like that that you've known in the past? Yeah, we, we see those even in the stories and the, the, some of the parables that the Lord tells. You know, you have like the, this parable of the prodigal son. As long as he had something to give to all his friends, there's all his friends who are buddy buddies with him. As soon as all his money ran out, where were all his friends? They were gone. This city who had given so much to the world, now all has turned on her. None to comfort her. Then she goes on, all her persecutors have overtaken her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. This is Alet by the Dalet, by the way, which means door or entrance. So you've got in this in verse three, and we cut four, we cut, skipped over a couple, and you, you can go back and look at those yourself because our time really is getting away from us very quickly. But he says, The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feast. Her all her gates, Dalet it means door, it means entrance. All of her gates are desolate, which means they're all gone. Anybody can walk in now. There's no protection. There's no security anymore. Anyone can walk through the gates. And her priests sigh. And that word sigh means to groan. And that is the most repeated word. I mean, it's one of those repeated words. Five times, all is the most repeated. But this is one of those words that is repeated over and over again. And it means to groan. It means that deep Scuttle, groan that comes. And it says, all the priests groan. There's no rest. There's no peace. You remember we, we looked at that verse last week in Jeremiah where he said, um, look for the old ways where the good paths are and walk in them and you will find rest for your soul. And their response was, we will not walk in them. They have no rest for their souls. They turned away from the one who could give them rest in their souls. They turned away from him. All her priests, all the gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Bitterness. 
I suppose, as I look over this room, I suppose that none of us have gotten to the point where we live in absolute bitterness because of things that have happened in our lives. We, sometimes we can get bitter over things once in a while. And it's like I said last week, you know, we're not, when we're talking about laments, we're not talking about complaining. Although complaining certainly is a part of what laments are. But when I talk, say we're not talking about complaining, complaining is like when you gripe about things. You gripe about stuff to each other and you gripe about things. Well, why didn't so-and-so do this? He could have done that better than that. And you gripe back and forth to each other. But laments are so much deeper than that as they cry out to the living God with hearts that are reaching up to God. And so she has her complaints that she brings before the Lord, which we will see. He, she goes on. She's in bitterness. I don't think any of us have been there. I don't think any of us, especially now that we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are to flee bitterness. We're not to have those kind of feelings against another. But she is an absolute destitute in her soul. Sad, isn't it? Is it sad? Do you feel it? Can you feel it? This is Jerusalem. Her adversaries have become the master. Those whom they used to have victory over now are their masters. For the Lord has afflicted her. And her enemies prosper. And the, 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 the uh, letter here in the Hebrew is hey. And it's a, it's the, a man pointing. The, the symbol is a picture of a man's arm pointing. And it has the idea of look, look, look. Look at that. See it. Look at it. He says that adversaries have become the master. The enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity. Look at that. Look what God has done. Will you learn? It's interesting because we know the rest of the story. It's interesting to remember that when they finally came out of captivity after their 70 years of captivity, when they came out of captivity and back to the land and, they, and everything was established again and the next temple was built, that they never, never again went back to idolatry. They never went back. They never went to idolatry again. They had learned their lesson. Oh, they became very arrogant in their pride. And you know, when you look at the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all, became arrogant in their religiosity, but... They never went back to the worship of idols. They had learned their lesson. What does it take to teach us? What does it take to teach us that we will not go back to the things that we know we ought not to hold on to? What will it take? What will it take to turn us? Now I'm going to do one more little section here. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. All her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer. 
that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. She has nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Oftentimes, in our struggles and trials, we have somewhere we can go. Not only do we have the comforter that lives with us, we have our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have those who care about us and love us and will come alongside to help and encourage us when we are down. She had no one. She had no one. All the princes have become like deer. They fled. They found no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. You feel it? I can. I can feel it. I can't empathize with her, but I can feel it. The agony in her voice. Ah. I'm going to go one more. I've got one more minute. He gave me ten. It says, in, I'm going to go down to verse, to verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. They know the reason. They understand why this has happened to them. They understand. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Not slightly. Not sort of. She has sinned gravely. And we know the long-suffering of our Lord. And how long he suffered with her. Therefore, she has become vile. Therefore, she has become removed. All who honor her despise her. The ones who used to honor her because of her greatness and her position, now they despise her. They despise her because they have seen her nakedness and she sighs and turns away. Now, we don't need to go into the graphicness of this, but it really had to do with the idea of her adultery. They have seen her adultery. She was exposed before them in the, in the way that they would treat adulterers in that day. They saw her nakedness. They saw that she had indeed had been one who had committed adultery, spiritual adultery against God, going after the idols, going after all her, her idols. Her uncleanness is in her skirt. She did not consider her destiny. That's a powerful phrase. She did not consider her destiny. How important it is in the day and age we live that men and women understand their destiny. If they are without Christ, they, understand, they must understand where they are heading, what their destiny is. She did not know her destiny. There are millions of people out there that we come across day by day. We may not come across millions, but we come across people day after day after day who do not know their destiny. They do not know that without Christ they are heading headlong to a lost eternity. They do not know it. And even when you tell them, they will not believe it. They did not know. She did not know her destiny. She did not believe that all that God said would come would actually come. She did not believe it. I think it's wonderful. 
that I know my destiny. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And you know it too. You know your destiny. You know one day this will all be over. All the pain, all the suffering, all the things that we have gone through, one day it will all be over and we will be with Him forever. I know my destiny. You know your destiny. But there are many out there, like the city of Jerusalem, who did not know that it would actually happen. We have said before, and I know you've thought it before, that an atheist is only an atheist until he dies, and then he's a believer. But it is too late. It is too late now. One can deny God until death comes, and they open up their eyes and realize, I was wrong. And then it's too late. Oh, how sad. Oh, how sad. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We recognize that these verses in this This book of Lamentations is so, so moving and so deep and so powerful. Yet, Lord, we want to be those who do not forget. Do not forget that you are a God of your word. And what you said you will do, you will do. And for those, Father, of unrepentant hearts, he will do what he has said he will do. So, Father, we pray that even as we know our destiny, we know that there are many who do not know their destiny. They do not know where they're going to end up because in final analysis, they will be like this city, sitting among the ash heaps, looking up and saying, look at me. But it will be too late. Father, we commit ourselves to Thee. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How I am going to finish this next week is a mystery to me as well, so we'll see.